I'm not sure what's going on in your life right now. I don't know your pains. I don't know your problems. I don't know what's plaguing you. I don't know the predicaments you find yourself in. I do know that war is all around us. Inflation is up. Death is daily. Politics is a mess. Division is constant. Mental instability seems to be running rampant. And on top of all of this, if you name the name of Christ and you're resolved to rep him well, you're experiencing another layer of pushback from a world that would seek to marginalize you and muzzle you, leave you out of the in crowds. Our text today is not merely a time to just talk about God disconnected from a context. God and all that he is, and God and all in the ways that he's made himself known, demonstrates himself to be relevant to people who are going through a whole lot. At first, Christians were harmless. Christians were viewed as a harmless sect. The book of Acts sort of tells the story that every time they stood in front of some Roman official, the Roman official would say, I don't see what the big deal is. I mean, they haven't done anything wrong. Dag, you want Caesar? Oh, I was about to let you go. Pilate said, Jesus, you did nothing wrong. I don't see anything. Uh, but for political reasons, okay, I'll give him you. I'll give you him since you don't want him, you want Barabbas. Christians were not troublemakers in the early church. They were always pronounced to be small and innocent. By Nero's reign, about 64, 65 AD, things started switching up because Christians were so docile, Christians were so on the low that they became easy targets, easy scapegoats. And so Nero thought, blame the Christians. Who's going to cry them a river? And of course, we know that many of the apostles died under the reign of Nero and the like. By now, when John is writing, it's late 90s AD. Emperor Domitian is on the throne. He was brutal to Christians. All the apostles are dead. They've all been martyred. Nobody just didn't wake up. They all suffered a violent death at the hands of a world, both Jews that did not appreciate them and or Romans that executed them. All of them now know what it means to stand for Jesus, even if it costs you your life. So now this group lives in the late 90s, and John himself, which is the only left apostle, he is exiled to do a bid on an isle called Patmos. Actually, the last time I preached before the Thyatira, I got to preach the, you know, starting with verse 10. It was all about John on the Isle of Patmos and the Spirit receiving the book of Revelation. Well, here he is again. This is another one of those I was in the Spirit moments for John. Another moment where John is caught up by the Spirit of God to see what needs to be seen so he can write what needs to be written so he can proclaim what needs to be proclaimed. 
And it's written to a church right now that's wobbly at best. The churches, the seven letters that we went through all show you only two of them were without criticism or critique. All the others were wrestling with some, like, some inconsistency. We saw a church that was loveless. We saw a church that was doctrinally and ethically compromised. We saw one that was tolerant of worldliness. We saw one that was, again, tolerant of immorality. We saw one that had a reputation for being something but no reality. All I'm saying is that this is the context that we come to our text this morning. The church wobbly at best. Blueprint, you may be wobbly right now. Christian out here who may or may not be a member here. Perhaps you're wobbly in the faith. Most of the relationships I started with 15 years ago are wobbly at best if they're even still among us. More J's than they had before, better cars than they had before, more followers, new and better streaming, but wobbly when it comes to the Christian faith. Commitment to Jesus is wavering. Commitment to the doctrines that we're supposed to embrace, wavering. Commitment to the church and gathering with the saints, wavering, if not all right, dismissed. Commitment to the giving to the gospel and to proclaiming it. Oh, all I'm saying is these are the days where there can be wobbliness. What is the remedy? The remedy for shaky, insecure, unstable believers is this vision that we're about to see of a king seated on the throne. That's the remedy. And what I have to do is show you in the Bible how that's relevant to earth, that the king in heaven is relevant to earth. So let's walk through this text. First of all, we're going to see the splendor of the king in verses one to seven, the splendor of the king. First, his splendor revealed. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Let's walk through it. First of all, I looked and behold. (laughs) He says, I looked and behold. That's that's vision talk in the Bible. Whenever you hear I look and behold, it's like if I were to say once upon a time, you know, that's fairy tale language. Soon as you hear it, you know, oh, he's telling a fairy tale. Well, it's the same thing. If you say I looked and behold and you tell me something that's otherworldly, I know you're talking vision talk. Ezekiel says this. Daniel says this. There's a door standing open in heaven. This is where God gives you a sneak peek at things the way they are by opening up a door for you to see what you would not ordinarily see. This is a door, a door in heaven and the voice like a trumpet. He says the first voice, you would have to go all the way back to chapter one. The first voice he heard was the voice of the resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The one he says has bass in his voice. The one he says is glorious. He has keys. He identified himself as Jesus because he says, I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. I'm the first, I'm the last. So he's clearly Jesus. So the voice of Jesus now comes and says, come up. I want to open the door for you. 
I'm going to give you more than just a window. I want to open the door for you. (laughs) This voice, come up. He says, at once I was in the spirit. To be in the spirit means that the spirit of God takes you to see what you could not see without the spirit. So you can hear what you could not hear without the spirit. Right now, this morning, people, we need a new pair of eyes. We need a pair of spiritual eyes to see what the spirit is saying. Just like all the letters said, he that has ears, let him hear what the spirit is saying. Today, we're like, oh, blueprint church, let us see what the spirit is showing. Come up at once. I was in the spirit. Oh, he's going to see from God's vantage point. That's what the suffering church needs. The suffering church needs to see from God's vantage point, needs to see from above, not just the problems that are to your right, the problems that are to your left, the problems that are inside. But we need to see the one who can solve the problems by coming up, come up regularly, frequently. We must come up. Confession. I used to spend a lot more time looking from the up vantage point before I started looking at the down vantage point in my phone. Let us get back to seeing what God would show us. What does he see in heaven? Ooh, grandma. No. Disciples, the gang's all here. We're back. No. James, the other son of thunder. No. James, our Lord's brother. No. Peter, high five. Good to see you again. No. Paul, nice work, buddy. And look at those gates, pearls. Look at these streets, gold. No. John says, I saw a throne that stood in heaven and one seated on it. I saw Heaven, the main attraction of heaven is not grandma, it's not those you left behind, it's not I always wanted to see you, it's the main attraction in heaven is a throne and one seated on it, the occupied throne. And what's the point of this text? That God reigns. He reigns and that his reign comes and is regardless of what's going on. Revelation is a climactic book. It's the last book in the canon. It is the conclusion of all of human history in ushering us into eternity. What is the point? It's in Revelation that you see the word thrown over and over and over again. Three-fourths of the time we see something about a throne in the Bible, we get three-fourths of them in Revelation. Why? Because Revelation wants you to know that when it's all said and when it's all done, all you really need is the throne. And the one seated on it. And when he's seated on it, that means he's not panicking. To be seated on the throne means work is finished. To be seated on the throne means I'm not politicking in the back trying to make a deal happen. To be seated on the throne means that it is finished to tell us that. He is not panicking. And he looks at you, believer, and he says, all you got to do if your world is in chaos, all you got to do if your world is in flux, all you got to do is look up at the one who's not panicking. Look up at the one who is stable and stationary. And guess what I'm doing? I'm reigning. Are you troubled this morning? God is reigning. Is your marriage in trouble? God is reigning. Is your job in trouble? God is reigning. 
Any illness that's messing with you, God is reigning. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 introduces us to a segue between a church that needed to know that God reigns and a world that will encounter the fact that God reigns. Because Revelation, from this point forward, is going to be about the reigning king telling you how he's going to button up everything that we've been watching. John, on this day, knows all too well that a king can make all the difference. See, you know us, we don't really kind of, we're not into kings because we're from a democratic society. So we don't, we don't get into kings. We're, that's not us. I remember when Queen Elizabeth died and I, I looked at it and I was respectful, but my heart could not really attach itself to the moment because I don't know what a queen means. And then I watched King Charles step up and become king. And even his own citizens were like, well, I'm not a fan of the monarchy because of colonization and because of some of the things that happened with kings. So this world is not as into kings at least in the West, is not into kings the way John would have been into a king. He knew that Rome was a king, had a king, and that Domitian was an absolute sovereign. So what he needed to let the church know is, but there is a king that's over Rome's king. (laughs) That there is a king, like the psalmist says in 93, the Lord Yahweh reigns and he's robed in majesty. Oh, he says, let me tell you something about the splendor of the king. First, let me tell you about his magnificence, which just means his beauty, his glory, his radiance. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, first of all, this is imprecise language. I told you that there are people who think that Jesus is black because when he's described in this language, it says his feet are like burnished bronze. These are not physical things that you can see to say God looks like a crystal. No. What this is, is this is how he manifested himself to me for me to see. What is it about him? First of all, Jasper and Cornelian were precious stones. They were brilliant stones known for their radiance, known for their brilliance. What he's saying is, let me tell you, the first thing I notice is that God radiates with light. God radiates with majesty. That God radiates with beauty. If you ever see somebody depict a demon in their true nature, they're hideous. If you see this one, he's glorious. God is seen as glorious. Every time these precious stones come up, they come up in the context of what we call theophanies, when God shows up. And he always says, God is beautiful. God is brilliant. God is radiant. Jasper is kind of diamond-like. Again, Jasper is kind of a, a crystal that reflects and reflects light. And what that means is that God in and of itself, his inner light shines forth with brilliance. The Bible says there will be no sun in eternity because God by himself will light up the cosmos. Cornelian is sort of like a ruby, a dark red color. And again, when you put this, the light of the jasper and the light of the cornelian, all we're talking about is, again, showing you grandeur and glory and beauty. That's the purpose of telling us this. And encircling his throne is a rainbow. The rainbow in scripture is the symbol of the faithfulness of God and the symbol of the promises of God and the symbol of the mercy of God. Oh, so let's... Don't sleep on this. The rainbow is God's way of declaring. 
that part of my majesty is the outpouring of my mercy. Oh, listen, the all outpouring majesty shows itself up in the all encompassing mercy. Now, listen, we see a semicircle rainbow as a sign. He sees it full circle to let you know that this mercy is a mercy that is abundant. Oh, let me take you back to Exodus 33. Show me your glory. Show me the outshining of who you are, Moses says in Exodus 33. God says, I can't let you see it because your eyeballs will burn up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to breeze past you, and then I'm going to open up your eyes so you can see where I was. (laughs) And once you see the aftermath, you'll get a glimpse of my goodness. Show you my glory? Let me show you my goodness. That's what the text says. And guess what happens? Exodus 34 tells us. So Yahweh passed by Moses. And when he passed by Moses, the Bible says he proclaimed something. What did God proclaim when he passed by? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, ungracious. The first thing he says about the goodness that's passing by, which is an answer to show me the glory that's passing by, is my goodness can be seen in my mercy. So John is up there and he's seeing the symbol of God's mercy, which again goes back to Noah and the covenant to be merciful, even when God has to be severe. And he says, I saw one who's brilliant in his essence, radiance, magnificence. But I saw the fact that this brilliant and magnificent one who looks like he could zap you in a minute is also so merciful that it's all around him church. I don't know about you, but the church should be comforted by this. The church is, is, is grateful for this rainbow and grateful for God's mercy because the church is in desperate need for the mercy of God. And yet we are also in need for God's judgment because the book of Revelation is written to people who look like they're on the losing team. They chose Jesus and the wheels fell off. They chose Jesus and the church went down. They chose Jesus and the attendance plummeted. They preached Jesus and people bolted. Oh, sinners, come to the God of mercy this morning. His magnificence is seen and his brilliance and the rainbow of mercy. But now look at his exaltedness. Verse 4, 24 thrones. And 24 elders, look, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, let me just say this. When you're studying Revelation, what you need to understand is that Revelation is filled with symbolism. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When we use numbers, sometimes we use numbers as statistics. How many dollars do you have on you? Count. One, two, three, four, 100. In other words, those are numbers for counting. Other time, we use numbers for symbols to say something. So if somebody comes up to you and say, come on, keep it 100, what they don't mean is 100, all I have is a 50 on me. No, because keep it 100 is using numbers to do something different than itemize and tally up. Is that clear? Well, this is what we're doing here. He's going to say some numbers, and the numbers are not mainly to make you count. The numbers are saying something because that's what numbers do. And after all of the Bible, we have so many times when numbers have been used to tell us stuff that we need to use that at this moment. So, first of all, 20. He sees lesser thrones, 24 of them, 24 elders, 
of thrones. Now, he just told us that I'm caught up with the one throne. So what this shows you is that there are other thrones. <laughs> there, there are other people with clout. There are other people with name recognition. There are people that you're going to meet. There are rulers these days. There are people you should take your hat off and say. There are some, madame, there are some times when you have to kind of get low because you're around somebody that's got a little position, a throne as though you will. These are 24 of them in heaven near the one throne. And what they represent is the fact that he's exalted over all thrones, <laughs> that he is exalted over all thrones. Now, these 24, that number 24 only shows up a few times and it's in Revelation. But 12 and 12 show up several times. And 12, we believe, symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel to talk about the people of God in the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples of the Lamb, which speaks about us in the New Testament. When you put them together, this is a representative of the people of God throughout the ages, the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Now, what it says here is they have on white robes. The only way you get a white robe is if it's given to you. In other words, this is God giving people a righteousness that's not their own, <laughs> giving people clothes that they could not ever come up with. In other words, these 24 elders who represent the people of God are the people of God that have received the righteousness from God. Ah! And the Bible says they have a crown, a golden crown. This is a Stephanos. A Stephanos crown is a crown you get when you compete well and you finish the race. In other words, it's a victor's crown. So the 24 elders that represents the people of God, Old Testament, people of God, New Testament, people of God throughout history that are gods that have the righteousness from God and also have overcome because of God. They're the ones who stand victorious. The Bible says you are more than a conqueror through him who conquered. And so here we are. He says, I went to heaven and I peeped Christian doctrine that there's one on the throne and nobody is messing with him. There's other thrones, but they're not like his throne, but they are thrones. And the thrones that I saw were the thrones of representatives of the people of God who received the righteousness of God and who've seen the, received the victory from God. I don't know, except for a few of my brothers in here. If you understand that this represents you right here, let me give you another a little tidbit I jacked from a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. <clears throat> he says here, he says another reason why you kind of see that these may be, they're certainly, again, divine beings. They're certainly, I should say, supernatural beings, but they're representative of people. And they may not themselves, this is, we, we debate this, but they may not themselves be, again, human. And the reason why is because the next chapter... In chapter 5, we're going to see them show up again. And this is what they're going to say when they're worshiping. Worthy are you who were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests. It's almost as though they're removing themselves from the recipients of redemption and they're just the witnesses to redemption. I know. Worthy are you. You rescued them 
And again, the angels can't say that. The Lord Jesus never died for angels. The Lord Jesus didn't come to redeem angels. Angels were not taken from their sinful state and brought back into relationship with him. But people are. And so these may be those who represent him. But church, you don't say like them. He, he saved people. He saved other people. He, he's blessing them. You get to say, worthy are you for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed me. By your blood, you ransomed us. From every tribe, from every block, from every neighborhood, from every status. And you made us a kingdom of priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Again, there's that crown. His exaltedness. But then we move to his holiness. Now, I wanted to say his weightiness. But there's something else going here. So I'm going to say holiness but really, it's a holiness that you're going to see. But it's talking about his weightiness, his gravitas, that God is weighty. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Oh, my goodness. Y'all going to have to give me a few minutes. I know some of y'all going to start tipping out, but I'm just saying you have to give me a few minutes. Listen, notice the scene, notice the spirit, and notice the sea. Notice this scene, notice the spirit, and notice the sea. First of all, you see the scene. What does he say about the scene? He says, around this throne, I saw lightning, rumbling, thunder. Terror. Come on, God is love. What's with all the lightning, rumbling, thunder, terror? What are you doing? And God says, This is what you call holiness. This is what you call weightiness. This is to declare to the cosmos that I'm not a homeboy. I'm not big homie in the sky. I'm not the man upstairs. I'm not the universe. <laughs> I'm not trivial. I'm not casual. I'm not to be taken lightly. I'm weighty. I'm substantive. God wants you to know it. Our grandmothers back in the day used to shut TVs off when it was a thunderstorm, and then told us it's because God was speaking. She wanted to instill in us a reverence for the God who's got bass in his voice and deserves to be listened to. The third commandment is don't say my name without purpose. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I'm not, it's not trivial. You don't just... Say my name, say my name. <laughs> I'm weighty, I'm lofty, I'm rightfully bougie. This is the scene from this point forward, four and five. We're going to talk about a throne, and then there's going to be a set of judgments. 
It's from the throne. We're going to always see this repeated. You're going to see, and God started opening seals. God started opening bowls. God started blowing trumpets. All these are ways of saying that God starts pouring out a response to a world that doesn't bow down to the king who sits on the throne. God does. He's going to respond to that. How? He's storing up the wrath. He's storing up vengeance. He's storing up. I I hate to say it. Every time I come, I get a text that talks about the wrath of God and the vengeance of God. But that's what you see here. He says, I saw lightning, thunder, rumbling. God says, where are the God deniers? Where are the Christ haters? Where are the evil lovers? Where are people who preferred profane over sacred? It says, from the throne, a response will usher forth. And the church needs to know this. In chapter 6, the martyrs say, how long? When are you going to do something about the fact they took our head? We were good citizens. We didn't do anything. We just said, Jesus is Lord. They said, Domitian is Lord. Caesar is Lord. We said, we beg to differ off with our head. When will you do something? The Bible says that he gives them white robes and he says, just a little while longer. All the way to chapter 19. And when they get to chapter 19, it's like ding dong, the witch is dead because the whore of Babylon dies. And it says that there is a hallelujah chorus that Babylon has finally been dealt with. Babylon is the Bible's way of talking about evil and anti-godness in general. (laughs) Let's go. I'm almost finished. No, I'm not. But still, (laughs) the scene is one of stored up. And God says, if you're incompliant and you're incompatible, this this rumbling will be poured out. Notice the spirit. How many people love the Holy Spirit? He's called the comforter, wonderful counselor. Again, he's the comforter. He's the one Jesus said, oh, don't get sad. Don't worry. I'm going to send you a comforter just like me. That's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he was hovering over the waves like a surfer. I mean, he was like, woo. And and the Bible says, and he said, let there be light. And so the spirit of God is at creation. But look at the spirit here. And he says, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven is one of those numbers that means the fullness. And so the fullness of God is the Holy Spirit of God, right? And the Holy Spirit is actually God. And here he's not the comforter, but he is the consuming fire. Because it is the Holy Spirit who's active in pouring out the response to evil. You see it. Jesus says, you can say what you want about me. Don't say anything wrong about the Holy Spirit. That's unpardonable. The first time we see God lash out at his own church is in Acts chapter 5. A man by the name of Ananias with his woman Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, and they drop dead. That was God showing you that the Spirit is also the Spirit of fire who's casting out or who's, who's, who's divvying out the response to anything that's incompatible with the holiness of God. Now, you got him on the throne. You've got the Spirit of God who's at the throne, and you've got the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who is the voice that's talking. Let me just say that this is a Trinitarian scene, that the, that the abode of heaven 
is indwelt by the Trinitarian God. And I want you to know, saints, that we should get more Trinitarian when we read the Bible because the Bible is talking about the interaction of the Son and the Father and the Spirit and doesn't mix them up. People will say, Father, I just want to thank you for dying for our sins. The Father did not die for our sins. The Father sent the Son. The Son died for our sins. The Bible says that he was raised up. The Bible says that the Spirit of God has been dispatched in us to mediate the presence of Christ. In other words, the Bible says when you're a Christian, he baptizes you in the singular name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John says, and when I went to heaven, I verified this is true. Because one on the throne, the voice of the Son said, come, I'll show you what's on the throne. And the Spirit of God was before the throne. Ah, I'm a teach, brother. I'm a teach. Now notice the sea. The sea, he says, and before the throne, there was, a, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So much here. First of all, it's a sea, right? It's a sea. It's meant to say there's inaccessibility to God. Secondly, it's, it's a sea like glass as crystal in their day. Again, glass was not crystal. Crystal was a unique, precious, like expensive version of glass. So this dark glass appears as precious crystal glass to make the point of purity, that this glass has been purified. Again, that's going with the holiness theme, that around the throne was a sea, a demonstration that the purity of God makes God inaccessible until God makes a way to be accessed, the purity of God. Also, in Revelation, it says that when God is finished, there will be no more sea. That's because in their day, the sea was not like us. They didn't have carnival cruises and they didn't have submarines. They were afraid of the sea because the sea is the place where turbulence and drama and chaos comes. And so they looked at the sea as a place that had to be subdued, but nobody could subdue a sea. And so the Bible says that when God has subdued his enemies and God has given us the shalom that was missing, the Bible says, and the sea will be no more. Well, this is a picture of a calm sea, which means that God in his holiness has subdued anything unlike himself. Put it all together. When Uzzah touched the ark, if you know your Bible, he dropped dead. Why? Because you can't touch holiness unless the way has been made. Oh, the Bible makes clear that Jesus was forsaken on the cross because at that time he bore the sins of the world on him. And so the father says, I turn my back on you because sin always makes God inaccessible because of holiness. The scene here, put them all together. Again, there's thrones and these thrones are here. And he says, there's, there's thunder because God is holy. There's a sea because God is inaccessible until he makes himself accessible. And there is crystal because God is so pure. And you know what this is like. That's what purity does, right? Purity doesn't play with impurity. Again, if you get new kicks, you're like, oh, watch out, watch it. I mean, how many of us take our shoes off? I don't even want to crease, right? You put them back in the box. Why? You go through all of that because purity already inherently means by necessity inaccessibility. Put that up. Put it in the case. No, you're going to mess it up. When you want to guard something, the Bible says around it was a sea. We're talking about the splendor of the king. Look at the value of the king. I'm going to speed up. <clears throat> He's 
6 to 8. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Oh, you have to go through the Bible. You have to understand what this is. But let me just say, first of all, he says around the throne, there are four living creatures. These creatures, if you go in other places in the Bible, especially like Ezekiel, are clearly like the cherubim. The cherubim are guardians of God's glory. They're the ones that the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned and he banished them from the garden and says, you're not going to touch the tree of life. He put a cherubim in front of it to guard it with a flaming sword. Cherubims guard the glory of God. Cherubims. So look at this is the value of God because God is worthy to be stood for. And God's glory is worthy to be defended. In other words, God's glory is worthy for you to say, who's the uncircumcised Philistine taunting the armies of God? The Bible says that God's glory is worthy of Jesus flipping tables and saying, zeal for the house has consumed me because y'all messing with the glory of God. The Bible makes clear that he's worthy for you to stand for. These, these, these creatures are angelic beings of some sort, and the way they're presented to us is like a lion. They are there, these angelic beings. They, they, they not only guard God's glory, but they execute God's plans, and they bring lioness-type regality to it. I mean, they do what they do as royal Ox, they do what they do with strength. Man, they do what they do with all the wisdom of those who have been given wisdom like God. And eagle, they're swift to do what they do on behalf of God. In other words, like cherubim, these are heavenly hosts. It says they have, they're filled with eyes. It's just full of eyes in front and behind. That's a way of talking about the omniscience of God. In other words, they carry out God's will. Based on the omniscience of God, they know what to do, when to do, where to do, how to do. They're woke. (laughs) But not only that, God is worthy for you to stand for. But he's worthy for you to serve because they're not just like cherubim. They're also like another group of beings called seraphim. Look what it says, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them have six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. Now, the seraphim are different than the cherubim. The seraphim stand in the presence of God and guard the presence of God. They were the ones in Isaiah chapter 6. It says they had six wings. Two was to cover their eyes because it's getting hot in here and you can't look at all this glory. They had two to cover their feet because they were declaring, I know that this is holy ground. Moses was told to take his sandals off because it was holy ground because this is a way of saying I'm unholy, but God has allowed me to be here and I cover my feet to acknowledge my unholiness compared to his holiness. And then it says two wings so that they can go to and fro and do his bidding. In other words, the seraphim were those who were in the presence of God and then flew out from the presence of God to do the mission of God to come back to the presence of God. All I'm saying is, John says, I saw around God, I saw a reason to stand for him and I saw a reason to serve him. I saw the reason to have be aware of his plans and a reason to do 
accordingly. I'm talking about these 24 elders and these four creatures. I just want to say, you ought to be asking right now, so what in the world, what's going on? What about me? Why do I think I should have access to this king? What makes me think that I should be embraced by this king? I'm not swift to do God's will. I'm slothful. I'm not strong in my defense of his name. I get cowardly at times. I'm not wise or shrewd in the way I maneuver through a world that's anti-Christ, but yet I'm still to call to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm not regal when I walk with a proud confidence in who I am and whose I am. Why should I have access to the one who's on the throne? Why should I be promised that I'll see Jesus Christ face to face as he is and become like him? How is it that according to Hebrews chapter 4, 16, I get to come boldly to the throne with confidence, looking for mercy and grace in time of need? What? And then we would tell you the gospel. One mediator between God and man. One bridge over the sea between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered the righteous, pure, for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's what the text says. We deserve to be banished. We deserve to be left out. Oh, but the Christian truth is that the gospel says the good news is that God takes sinners and makes saints. That God takes sinners who are distant from him. Oh, yes. Hallelujah, Lord. You that were far off have been brought near, he told them. You who've been far off and brought near. Look, the Lord Jesus didn't fish with a pole. The Lord Jesus jumped in and waded in the water and scooped us up. He's a rescuer. And then he takes you to be with him. Revelation 21 is going to conclude with, oh, and I heard a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Let's follow the model of the 24 elders as I begin to make my our initial descent. I'm serious. This, I, I'm, really, I'm really descending. The, you know, the, the things just hit. You know, the, you know, those little flaps to let you know it's coming, but, but, you, you, but you can't see the runway just yet. You, but it's, we, we, no, no, no. You want this, though, because now we get to follow their model. This is some application. And day and night, they never cease to say. And day and night, they never cease to say. The four creatures, day and night, never cease to say. The creatures, the creatures, listen, if the 24 elders, they represent the the redeemed humanity, the creatures represent all of creation. It says that there are four and they sit on four sides. In the Revelation, four often means the four corners, meaning all. So all of creation. So heaven and earth are singing right now. All of creation is recognizing and serving the glory of God. That's what he's worthy of, and that's what we have. So the four say, let me show you how this is done, right? Let's say over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And it says, that's what they say over and over again, relentless. And I like what one preacher said. He said, he's holy, 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 completely separated from creation, elevated from creation. He's in another category from creation. He's in a class by himself. He is spotless. He is separate from evil. He's absolutely unstained and untainted by error. All of his ways are perfect. All of his works are perfect. All of his words are perfect. Holy, 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 get this, to the superlative degree. Holy, holier, holiest. I love that. This is what they say. Do you know this holiness? It's only when you see that holiness that you say, not, I mean, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not perfect, but you say like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm messed up and I dwell among a people that's messed up. And then you would say, I know this should be curtains. But it's that point where God would say, sins can be atoned for. The four creatures say this over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who has all power, the one who is supreme over all. Who was? He's eternal, always existed. Who is? He is right now. The great I am, always in the present tense. He is to come, meaning he always will be. He never passes the torch. He never brings in new, younger, fresher legs, fresher leadership. This is your team now. You know those athletes that when they finish, like, Shh, this is your team now. I can't even, I got to put ice on my knees. That's not him. He was he is, and he is to come. Now let's end with the worship do his name. And whenever the living creatures, verse 9 to 11, give glory and honor and thanks to him, when the living creatures say, I said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it says the 24 elders fall down before him. That's the, those representing the redeemed. That's you. That's me. This is your time to chime in. It says here, and they fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. But why? But why? Because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I'm taking my seat, but all of creation gets it. The elders get it. The creatures get it. Heaven gets it. Right earth gets it. They fall down, it says. When a king was conquered, he took his crown and he laid it at the feet of the conquering king. It says, you conquered me. You got me, Jesus. You conquered me. I was a dope dealer, but you got me, Jesus. I was a singer for myself, but you, but you got me, Jesus. I was an accountant cooking the books, but you got me, Jesus. I was the man in my day, but you got me, Jesus. It says they let their crowns down. They took their crowns and said, I got a crown too. They know me. I'm Kevin Durant. <laughs> Take my crown. They fall down, they cast their crown, and then they resound. He's worthy. That's what worship is. It's when you bring the best of you, your crown, and you lay it before the feet of the one who gave it to you. And the Bible says, this is the why of worship. 
because you created everything. We just, we just tinkering what you did. You be making stuff out of nothing. I just take stuff you did and say, this nice too. She says, you created all things. There's something called the creature cre- created, created distinction. The God, not God contrast. Oh, I'm finished. Look who's bowing. Again, the representatives of man, the representatives of creation, all the supreme beasts, the top of the food chain is bowing. Guess who's not bowing? And nowhere in Revelation are they bowing to the throne. The voice like a trumpet, who's Jesus, and the spirit, the burning spirit. You know why? Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God. They are all creator and not created. So as we bow, I would say take our seats, but only a couple people are standing up. Let this inspire less man-centered theology, man-centered worship. I was at a church, and when they were singing indescribable, unchangeable, I was like, ah, they, they went through it real quick. And then they switched to, you thought I was worth saving. And they ran that song in the ground. And then the, the preacher stopped and started preaching the concept of the worthiness to be saved. And then they sang it again. I said, you know, I don't want to disparage letting people know that God had them as an affection, but this is worship. <laughs> we should have ran, rerun indescribable, unchangeable, and breeze through you thought I was worth saving. Let people be overtaken with him. In conclusion, J.I. Packer rightly notes turn our knowledge. We must turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God by turning each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.